2 Kings chapter 19, verses 14 to 19 is our text this evening. We'll begin our reading at verse 8 of chapter 19 and read through verse 19. You will uh, recall, uh, if you've been present uh, at this expositional series, that uh, the king of Assyria has uh, threatened Jerusalem, uh, they've King has taken uh, the fortified cities of Judah and uh, is threatening Jerusalem, has sent his representative, uh, his uh, spokesman, to, uh, to, to threaten uh, Jerusalem not to continue uh, to rebel against him. Um, and uh, we pick up here um, after uh, Isaiah receives, or rather Hezekiah receives uh, this message from uh, his officials that he sent out to meet the king of Assyria's officials. Um, verse 8, then the Rabshakeh uh, returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Uh, when he heard them saying concerning Terhaka, king of Cush, behold, he has come out to fight against you. He sent messengers again to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you, saying, Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, destroying them completely. So will you be spared? Did the gods of those nations which my fathers destroyed deliver them, even Gozan and Haran and Rezif and the sons of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, where, uh, the king of the, of the city of Sepharim, and the king of Hena and the king of Iva? Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, and went up to the house of the Lord, and spread it out before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, and you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord our God, I pray, deliver us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. 
the reading of Holy Scripture. Be seated, please, and let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give thanks to you for your word. We are thankful that you have recorded these historical sections of redemptive history, that we might know them and that we might glean from them the significant principles that you have laid out in them for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you might give us attentiveness to your word, that you would enable us to understand your word, for we confess, O Lord, that we are dependent upon your Holy Spirit, that we need your Spirit in order to understand. Enlighten our minds then, O Lord, and grant to us the Holy Spirit's illumination as we look into these words inscripturated by the Holy Spirit himself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Search the internet and you will find lists of the most powerful prayers in the Bible. The danger of such lists is that they can mislead us to believe that the power resides in prayer itself. Not long ago, One of the prayers that makes lists like this, the prayer of Jabez for strength and protection in 1 Chronicles 4, was touted by a popular evangelical author as the vehicle for, quote, breaking through to the blessed life, as though praying the prayer of Jabez, there in 1 Chronicles 4, was the means of receiving blessing from God, a means of living the life that God has appointed for his people. You may have also heard it said that prayer changes things. That's a pious but misleading phrase that implies our prayers are more important than the one to whom we pray. Uh, the truth is, rather, that prayer puts us in contact with the God who has the power to change things. Prayer transports us into heaven's throne room. Prayer moves the throne of God. Now that said, there nevertheless are many exemplary, uh, or exemplary prayers in the Scriptures. David's prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple, 1 Kings 8. Daniel's prayer of repentance on behalf of God's people in exile in Babylon, Daniel chapter 9. Jesus high priestly prayer of John chapter 17. 
just to name a few. And we can glean from these exemplary prayers of the Bible and Hezekiah's prayer here in First King, uh, Second Kings 19 uh, is one of those exemplary prayers. It's short, but it gives us profound insight into the nature of God and the nature of prayer. We want to look at a number of things here, uh, four sh- uh, points, three short, another a bit longer, and then we'll look at a couple of practical applications. In the first place, the significant place of Hezekiah's prayer, verse 14. Now, if you remember, after Hezekiah heard that report now, the report of uh, the uh, king of Assyria's, uh, that the king of Assyria brought through the Rabshaka. The Rabshaka was uh, the cupbearer to the king of Assyria, uh, and he was the king's spokesman. He was uh, likely the best order among the king's officials, and so he sent his best order to uh, King Hezekiah, uh, and Hezekiah sent his officials out to uh, instead of meeting the Rabshaka himself, he sent his officials out to meet the Rabshaka. Uh, the the Rabshaka uh, gives him his spiel, uh, and uh, it's evident that the the threat is very real against uh, Jerusalem. And uh, Hezekiah's officials return to him with their clothes torn, a uh, clothes torn rather, and. Um, And then Hezekiah does something very significant. He tears his clothes, he clothes himself in sackcloth, and he goes to the house of the Lord. Now, uh, Kings doesn't tell us explicitly what Hezekiah did in the house of the Lord, but the house of the Lord was a house of prayer. It's named the house of prayer in the scriptures, the temple Uh, The Lord's house was a house of prayer. I have no doubt in my mind that Hezekiah went to the temple and he prayed. Uh, We aren't given the substance of that prayer, but nevertheless, uh, that was the the, the king's purpose uh, for going to the house of the Lord, to humble himself before the Lord and and to pray there. And now uh, comes another message from Sennacherib, uh, the king of Assyria. Uh, another uh, taunt against Hezekiah and uh, the people of Judah. Uh, don't believe that your God will deliver you. Uh, likely sent this in, uh, likely heard orally, and then uh, Hezekiah now has a written copy of this letter sent to him by the king of Assyria. And again, significantly, he immediately goes to the house of the Lord, and now we do have uh, Hezekiah's recorded prayer. He could have prayed anywhere, but 
the significance of taking the king of Assyria's letter with him to the house of the Lord shouldn't be overlooked. This is the particular place where Jehovah, whom the highest heavens cannot contain, particularly places his name and from his dwelling place in heaven hears when his people on earth pray, Solomon said in that exemplary dedicatory prayer of 1 Kings chapter 8, after the completion of the temple. So, Hezekiah goes to a significant place, a place where the Lord has placed his name, Jehovah has placed his name, Jehovah has said, I will hear your praise. Second, Hezekiah's disposition in prayer. Again, in verse 14, When Hezekiah saw uh, this letter, when he received this letter, he read the letter, he goes to Jehovah's house, and he spreads that letter out before Jehovah. He solemnly hands over the letter, the evidence of Sennacherib's threats against Jerusalem and his blasphemy against the Most High God. He spreads that letter out as evidence of what the king of Assyria is threatening. Prayer is an act of dependence upon the Lord. It's an act of humility. We see it Depicted that way in uh, the scriptures, Hezekiah recognizes that there's nothing that he can do about this Assyrian threat. He's powerless to stand up against Assyria's powerful army. Hezekiah's prayer, therefore, begins with a disclosure of his helplessness and his humility before the Lord. That's his disposition in prayer. Thirdly, Hezekiah's address to Jehovah in verse 15. No doubt you've been instructed that prayer should begin with praise and that it should be full of praise. And Hezekiah's prayer is certainly a fine specimen of that. But that's not the only relevant matter here. You may not have given much thought as to how you should address the Lord God in prayer, but Hezekiah does, and you should. Who is this God whom Judah's king addresses? Who is the one to whom he prays? How does he address the king of heaven. He addresses him as Jehovah, the God of Israel, who's present with his people, enthroned above the cherubim, the only true God, you are God, 
You alone, verse 15, who hold sovereign sway over the nations, God of all the kingdoms of the earth, and the powerful creator of all, you have made heaven and earth. Jehovah is the covenant God committed to his covenant people Israel who manifests his presence among his people and the angelic hosts of heaven. Hezekiah confesses in one sentence that he approaches a God who is near, vast, and mighty, the one who is accessible, sovereign, and able. Now, this isn't only true, but self-encouraging, because this is precisely the kind of God Hezekiah needs in his present distress. Speaking truth about God to God assures us in God. Hezekiah's address to God in prayer is a cue for us to pay more attention about the way we address God, about the way we begin our prayers. Fourth, Hezekiah's appeal to Jehovah in verses 16 through 19. Notice in the first place, the king begins by appealing to Jehovah's senses. Verse 16, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Next, he appeals to Jehovah's superiority, confessing two truths. Truth 1, verses 17 and the first part of verse 18. The kings of Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. Truth 2, in the second part of verse 18. Those weren't real gods, but the work of men's hands. So... Uh, they were able to destroy them. Truth one, their gods were cast into the fire, is negated by truth two. Their gods weren't real gods, so it really doesn't matter. In all her conquests, Assyria had never run up against a real deity. Finally, Hezekiah appeals Uh, to Jehovah's honor, and I would say, most importantly, he appeals to Jehovah's honor. The Assyrians have attacked Jehovah himself. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, had sent words of reproach to the living God. Hezekiah wanted the Assyrians and everyone else to know that the God of Judah wasn't just another god in the long line of gods. Hezekiah was jealous for the glory of God. So here is King Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, facing a serious threat from the Assyrian war machine, A lot was at stake. 
Assyrian victory would mean loss of freedom, possessions, possibly life itself, itself or captivity uh, in Assyria. He wants deliverance from the Assyrian king, so he lays out his supplication for deliverance in chapter 19. Now, O Lord our God, I pray, deliver us from his hand. But most of all, more than anything, he wanted the kingdoms of the earth to know that Jehovah alone is God. God is jealous and zealous for his own honor and glory. Even the cross of Christ is about the glory of God. In the cross, God glorified or magnified both his justice and his grace. His justice was magnified in that God judged sin in the person of his Son. And his grace was magnified in that he provided a way for sinners to have their sins forgiven through faith in the one who bore their sins on the cross. If God is zealous for his glory, uh, we may rest assured that he will be most apt to show himself strong on behalf of his people when they concern themselves for his honor and glory as they appeal to him in prayer. Two things practically by way of concluding application. First, Hezekiah's prayer challenges us as to how concerned we are for the honor and glory of God. We lament and bemoan the wickedness that we see in the world in our day. Abortion, sexual immorality, pornography, gender-affirming surgery that destroys the lives of children, human trafficking, and many other things like these things. But how much of our lamenting flows from a concern for God's honor and glory and how much of it is from a concern for what prevailing wickedness will do to the world, to our nation, or how, how it will affect us personally, our own happiness, our own well-being. It goes without saying if we consider Hezekiah's prayer, which should be our greatest concern. Second, the fact that prayer is to be occupied 
with a concern for God's honor and glory doesn't mean that there's no room at all for our petitions. King Hezekiah, we've already noted, uh, presented his position, uh, petition rather to uh, the Lord with great boldness. Now, O Lord, I, uh, Lord our God, I pray, deliver us from a serious hand. Jesus taught his disciples and he taught us to pray for God's honor and glory, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Jesus taught us that our greatest concern in prayer ought to be God's honor and glory. But then he taught us to bring our petitions, didn't he? Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive our sins as we forgive the others. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What we should take away from this text and from the Lord's Prayer, for that matter, is that our petitions are to be properly framed and properly motivated by God's honor and glory. But with those things in place, we're free to bring our requests to the Lord with the confidence that He cares about us, that He listens to us when we pray, and that He answers our prayer. And that's what the rest of chapter 19 will reveal to us as we consider it next Lord's Day, Lord willing. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you indeed are God and God alone. To you, O Lord, belong all the kingdoms of the earth. You've created all things. As we think about the things that concern us in this world uh, and our lives, and as we pray to you, as we think about our own prayer lives, surely... It's evident that our prayers are often driven by our own personal concerns rather than your honor and your glory. Now, this is to our shame. It's also to our detriment, O oh Lord. So we pray that you would teach us to pray, even as your disciples asked, O oh Lord, that you would Teach them to pray. Teach us to pray, they said to you. Now we say to you, O Lord, teach us to pray. And put upon our hearts what our greatest concern ought to be in prayer. Put upon our hearts your honor and your glory. Your honor, the, uh, your glory among all the nations, that they might know that you alone and no other uh, are God. 
uh, that you, O Lord, are the creator of the heavens and the earth, that the gods of the nations are nothing, uh, that you, O Lord, are the covenant-keeping God, and the one who dwells with his people, and the one alone who can hear among all the gods of the world. And hear our prayer, O Lord. Incline uh, your ear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and, and see those things that assail the church today and that assail your people today. And for the honor and glory of your name, O Lord, deliver them and show that you alone indeed are the true and the living God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.